Hello, everyone, and welcome to our podcast. This is for the Bioarchaeology of Death Anthropology 355 with Dave Hopwood at Vancouver Island University. My name is Claire Cunningham, and I'm with my partner here today, Casey Moore. Hello. And we are virtually, because of social distancing, going to be talking over this podcast today over a few episodes regarding remains, burials, and different kinds of symbolism about the treatment of death. Each episode is going to cover a different area of the world, a different type of burial, and both of us are going to kind of bounce back and forth with each other to have discussion and question time regarding some of the interesting aspects that come from landscape archaeology and excavation of remains. Our segment is called The Skeleton Twins, and without further ado, let's get started. The topic of our first episode is going to be Vikings. To begin, we're going to situate ourselves in two different areas, first starting in Sweden and then moving on to Norway. We're going to be discussing the different Scandinavian burial remains and how the location and the traditions, rituals, and beliefs all tie in to play a part in the treatment of death within this area. To situate ourselves first, let's talk about Viking Age town Burka in eastern central Sweden. Burka was the key center for trade during the 8th to 10th century. Um, within this area, there was over 3,000 graves that were known of and approximately 1,100 that had been excavated, making it one of the largest known congregation of burials in the Viking world, which is pretty crazy. First, I kind of want to give a background of the types of things that were found within the grave. We know that there's individuals, and I'll get to kind of the age, the sex, the ancestry in a moment. But one of the really key aspects of this particular archaeological site that I find very interesting is actually not, in, not having to do with individuals at all. It's really the grave goods that stand out within this area. So some of the grave goods that were excavated included a sword, an axe, a spear, armor-piercing arrows, a battle knife, shields, um, and actually a horse. Um, so I guess to start off before we dive into this information, I want to discuss with Casey as well how we kind of approach this type of research and what we like to do and kind of things we like to discuss before getting into it is to be aware of our prejudice and to be aware of our bias. Um, I think it's a really important aspect of archaeology. I think it needs to be considered before looking at anything in the field. So, you know, and it's it's hard to eliminate it because we're human beings and everyone is born with a level of bias and based on the experiences they have and things like that. However, once you become con consciously aware of it and you try to represent your bias in like the least damaging way possible or perhaps the least, um, you know, 
affecting your research type of way possible. That way you can create interpretations and create perceptions solely based on the analytical data that you see in front of yourself rather than kind of the prejudice stereotypes or associations you would create in your mind. So, and with that, I'm then going to go into the exact interpretations I would take if I was an archaeologist looking at this. Um, and the grave goods immediately pop out to me, and I think it's really, really interesting to, to examine. So first, already talking about a sword, an axe, a spear, and arrows, completely illuminates a warrior type of perception to me um I would not think that like my first kind of interpretation would be a baker or something like that they don't seem like common tools I it seems like the individual either was a participant in a battle or a knight or an army type of setting whether they were a participant or they could also have been a manufacturer of these types of tools for the individuals that were in the army. That part we will get into later. However, just to kind of like touch on the basics of what we first see before getting into anything else, it seems like the type of equipment for some type of warrior. Okay, so... As we as we kind of know too in the academic field and just in kind of like the social aspects of anthropology and society and things like that, we do come across a lot of genderization and sexualization type of research and it's suggested in a lot of material and historical records that the male sex is usually associated with the gender of a warrior or a knight or some person that had this occupation. So knowing this, this research becomes really interesting because the individual that they actually excavated out of all of the known graves that were in the area, the sex was determined to be male and based on the assemblage of goods and all those things. However, the sex was only questioned after a full osteological and contextual analysis that ended up showing the individual to actually be a woman. Which is crazy. It's crazy to kind of look at, again, what we just talked about, the initial perceptions people can have just based on a couple of objects. But it also, we are going to dive into kind of the ethical issues that come with misgendering and how that can greatly affect reputation it can greatly affect methods process like all of these dis different kinds of things that come with archaeology and excavating a site so this research is very interesting viking scholars have been reluctant to acknowledge the agency of women and weaponry so looking at this grave and seeing those types of objects n immediately kind of associating one gender happens quite often and has happened in this Viking age, whether we know that to be a correct assumption based on the gender roles that played during this time and played with this population, we 
it's hard to tell because there's, you know, no live informants to talk to or anything like that. However, we're going to get into kind of the physicality of the remains and understand where the misgendering went and what we can kind of learn from that and take away from that. So to start, we're going to dive into the dental wear of this skeleton that was excavated. The dental wear of the lower molars was clear, but it wasn't, it was moderate. It wasn't exactly kind of, it's kind of ambiguous, but there was dental wear, which is interesting. Um, because it was clear enough, they estimated they got a date of age, which was about 30 years of age. Um, moving on to the greater sciatic notch of the hip bone, this ended up being quite broad. With that was a wide preocular sulcus that was present as well. So to kind of give um, a greater explanation of what that is, I'm going to explain it. So the preauricular sulcus, pardon my pronunciation, is a groove that's frequently seen on the iliac bone which is adjacent and parallel to the inferior surface of the scaroliac joint. Excuse me. So what's important about this analysis is that this area of the bone um, is prominently described as a characteristic of a female pelvis, which is the very first kind of presentation of this skeleton that points towards a feminine characteristic. Moving on with the lack, there's also we go back to the skeleton and look at the projection of the mental eminence on the mandible, which is the lower part of the jaw. So because there is a lack of projection, again, that is a characteristic of a female. Opposed to a broader projection of the mandible, which is most prominently seen in the male sex. So moving on to the long bones, they were found to be quite thin and slender and gracile, which again points us towards the assessment of a female individual rather than a male individual. To finish kind of the analysis of the skeleton off, another really, really interesting aspect of the skeleton that pointed out to me was that there was no pathological or traumatic injuries that were observed. So what this tells me, even as just an academic, but also as an archaeologist, that really stands out because if we go back to our original kind of prejudice of looking at the grave goods, associating that individual with being or belonging to kind of a warrior or a knight or someone participating in battle now looking at that there's no pathological or traumatic injuries observed what does that tell us what kind of perceptions or interpretations can we make of that well something that comes to first mind for me pathological causes can show us different 
types of effects on the body that come through disease, can come through medicine, can come through just kind of any general things that the individual went through throughout their lifetime, what they ate, all those types of things that would show up on the skeleton or the tissue or things like that. With no presence of the tissue, we're just going to be looking at the skeletal remains. So with that, it we can come to a pretty accurate conclusion that if they don't have any pathological remnants or injuries or things like that, we can assume that they relatively lived a healthy lifestyle, that they didn't have any kinds of internal health complications or health threats that would have compromised their body and their overall health. When we look at the traumatic injuries that weren't observed, we can look at this kind of aspect as there's no physical marks or physical damages or physical points on the body that we can clearly see as being a blunt force trauma or perhaps a sharp force trauma or any, any kind of action like that that would have come across as being forcible onto that individual, whether that be by an, another individual or an animal or anything other kind of aspect that they would have come across within their environment. So in conclusion, if we have no internal issues, no traumatic issues, what does that tell us about the grave goods that we know were found buried with this individual? If they don't show any signs of being of being damaged in battle, there's no signs of being unhealthy, what kind of interpretations can that bring us to, let's say, status within society or their hierarchy or the power dynamics or things like that? Could we say that they relatively lived a healthy lifestyle? Maybe they could eat really well and therefore didn't have any pathological injuries observed. With eating well, does that mean that they were had a higher social status or perhaps were in a higher hierarchy because they had better food provided to them or they were able to access different kinds of foods that would provide them with a better diet? Because there were no traumatic injuries, could that lead us to believe that maybe they weren't actually a participant in battle or weren't an actual warrior that participated if they didn't have any injuries? Perhaps were they a manufacturer of the tools that they were buried with and that's why they were buried with them? Perhaps they are of a bloodline that associated with a warrior and they had family that were deceased around the area or something like that and that's why that they were buried with those tools. There could be a million different kind of conclusions that we could come to about this individual. It's all about kind of the discussion of this and the review of all this data and detail that it's important to try to you know, process of elimination, 
when you come across different data to bring you to a different interpretation and things like that. It's really interesting, this particular research, to see that not only were they misgendered in the beginning, you see all these different kinds of goods, but now it comes to the association of how the body was preserved with no injuries. What does that tell you? It's it's confusing, but I think it's really it's really interesting. So the Viking the Viking warrior female showed genetic affinity to present day inhabitants of the British Islands, which we know it at the time was England and Scotland. The North Atlantic Islands, which at the time was Iceland and the Orkneys, Scandinavia, which was Denmark and Norway, and to the lesser extent, the Eastern Baltic Europe, which was Lithuania and Latvia. So, the woman is significantly more similar to these modern Northern Europeans than to the Southern Europeans, all of which the places we listed or what we talked about it are geographical locations that are situated within the viking world and are situated near each other so with this kind of ancestry it can tell us a lot of different things about the movement the mobility of the person as well as the group whether they had roots that they migrated with or things like that can give us insights onto the ancestry as well as the lineage. For the sex identification and a proper contextualization that was made, we can kind of dive into the relation to the objects as well as the questions that are still raised if the martial objects in the grave in fact mirrored the identity of the deceased. Again, similar associations of women buried with weapons have been dismissed, as we've talked about, and they've been argued in place that they could be heirlooms or kind of different symbolic meaning of grave goods that reflected the status and the role of the family rather than the individual. So again, I think that comes to terms with associating the male sex to being in fact the warrior and associating the female sex to having kind of a different family type of role or having those objects buried with them, meaning they were associated with somebody else or things like that. So within this research, it wasn't concluded that the individual was a warrior or not or whether the objects were just heirlooms. However, it does contribute a lot of information and a lot of rewriting our understanding of social organization that concerns gender as well as the mobility and the types of occupation patterns that occurred within these past societies. So we're going to have a question period. One of the first questions that I'm going to discuss both with my own opinion and with Casey's is, do weapons necessarily determine a warrior? 
we kind of touched on this at the beginning of the analysis of this individual that can you really associate certain types of objects that appear to be weapons to an identity of a person or an occupation of a person so I'll Casey I'll bring that over to you I think like um that like uh like weapons, like I, I don't think that they will define it. I don't think they define a warrior. I think there's like, I think it's much more than that. Like you have to look at everything rather than just what, uh, ju- rather than just the grave goods, I guess. Like you have to look at the skeleton, look at how they're buried, look at everything like that. And then I think, I don't know. I think it's just very difficult to say like, yeah, that's a warrior because they're buried with swords. Like. How can we say that? Like, we weren't there, and we don't really have anyone to talk to in order to prove this fact. I don't know. Like, what do you think? For sure. I I would say the same. I would also... Not only is it hard to associate the meaning of a weapon to the meaning of the person, but also how really do you associate what is a weapon and what's just an object? You know... Within within the context of the research, it's described as being a sword, being an axe, being a shield, things like that. But what's so, so important about grave goods is like the determination of what the actual actual object is. And then further, how do you place the meaning to the object and then the meaning to the grave and then the grave to the person and all of these different connections kind of circulate around and kind of just gives a little bit more piece of a puzzle towards the bigger picture. The next question we want to discuss is, do you think there are any ethical issues surrounding the misgender of remains? I think what I what comes to me first, I, I really enjoy the ethical issues side of archaeology. Um, We've had lots of class discussions about ethics and ethical issues. I think they're really interesting and really critical to archaeology as a whole and archaeology as a discipline. It really makes me think now kind of all of the research that I look into and all of the articles that I read, immediately I think of, okay, well, what are the ethical issues that come out of this? So... What I think about, based on this research in Sweden, in the Viking world, which can also be brought into light anywhere in the world and with any kind of population, it's not necessarily just with Vikings, but in terms of the Vikings, I think misgendering remains can bring a lot of reputation issues with both the team of archaeologists, the let's say the university that's funding the archaeologists, the government of Sweden that's allowing the excavation to take place, the publication of remains, who's public, uh, uh, making them public, things like that. With misgendering remains, all of those reputations can be damaged and all of the credibility that was once had or once thought to have had can, can be altered. The students 
that are working with the professors in the archaeological team or things like that, the informants that they could have been working within within Sweden, the associates, this and this, like it can be really create a big hardship with that relationship amongst all those all those people. Furthermore, it can also cause a lot of damage to the local people that live within that area. Perhaps if they have ancestral ties or lineage towards this site, towards uh, the individuals that were buried here, things like that, it can be very overwhelming, probably very traumatizing to be uncovering these individuals, to be reanalyzing the individuals, to be taking them from the graves, removing them from the space that they were buried, and then coming to terms with the fact that they were initially misgendered, I would assume causes a lot of confusion and a lot of frustrating feelings. Um, It also, again, when we talked about having the biases and having the prejudices and having the initial stereotypes of associating one sex to a certain type of object or one sex to this type of meaning, to then find that it ended up being misgendered really kind of gives a clearer picture as to the ways in which we should be eliminating those and how archaeologists should be processing, you know, the mes- the methods, the process of, our, of excavation, the types of things that they find, the way they handle them should be more ambiguous and more like a blank slate type of thing, which is incredibly difficult nonetheless, however, to try to eliminate the misgendering as much as possible are kind of the issues that I can think of. Casey, how about you? Um, That was really well said. Like, I I would have to agree with, like, everything that you said. Um, I I would also have to add that, like, it would affect generations. Like, by misgendering misgendering remains, it affects so much, and it's going to affect, like, future and future. So I think, like, also another factor that I'd like to bring up would be, like, reconciliation. Like, if if we wanted to give back these swords or, like, what to these individuals if we identify that person as the wrong sex it's just gonna create so much confusion and so much frustration and it's just it's just not gonna be good like not gonna be good at all like from the start and you're right we have to create like that open mind that like come into it as nothing as in as we're just stepping in and this is this and we have to analyze the whole thing rather than just oh they have swords male mm-hmm. instantly mm-hmm. it's not it's not fair it's not fair to the individual and it's not fair to the um to the people of that like of that area it's just i just think it's just it's just it's frustrating <laughs> really frustrating for sure for sure so the final question that we're going to be talking about in the viking town of Berka, Sweden, before we move on, is based on all of this, what kind of precautions do you think you would take to fix this mistake? I know we kind of already touched on that about removing biases, making sure that these precautions are taking, taking place, that the methods are there, all these things. 
do you have any further ideas of if you were a person in the field, kind of what modes would you take? The modes that I would take, I would say I would have to, um, what I would do is like with my archaeological team, I would say I would have to do like make sure that everyone is keeping an open mind. I know it's going to be hard and challenging, but I'd want to make sure that we are still sticking to the, like not sticking, um, staying away from our biases and like coming into the field and looking at the site as a whole thing rather than just um, piece by piece. Or even if we look at by piece by piece, we could put them together and just, it's just going to be, it's really hard to just say, Hey, I'm going to make sure my archeological team is going to be no biases because everyone's different. Like I would love to say like, yeah, like, it's going to be gone, but I don't know. I don't know how other people are going to react. I don't know how other people are going to be, but the best I would say is that I'm just going to do it myself and hope that everyone's going to be on that same level that I am at. How do you feel about it, Claire? I agree. I think, you know, those natural kind of strives before you get into the field or get into the excavation are going to come every single time trying to eliminate those things. I think other types of precautions I would take to prevent misgendering would be to really have a plan laid out or a process laid out with the local communities, with the local governments, and also in the process of like publication. I think I would make sure that I don't publish anything until every type of analysis is has undergone or every I've talked to every single person possible things like that I would make sure that the remains stay with the local communities that they get the initial initial decision to choose when it's published how it's published in what way it's published where the remains end up the length of which the analysis goes or stops or things like that, I think in order to to keep the level of confusion and frustration at the lowest it can possibly be, especially when you're dealing with individuals from such an ancient past, but also from such a specific locale, especially if you're having archaeologists from other parts of the world coming in to do this research, you have to stay on top of the local feelings and like the local relationship and how they want to proceed further with that with the publication of research i agree all right so continuing on with this episode we are going to stay in the location of burka sweden However, we're going to look at some different research that was done, some different remains that were excavated, and also look into the Malaren region, which is east-central Sweden. So Lake Malare is actually the third largest freshwater lake in Sweden and runs 150 kilometers from east to west. If we think about it, in the Viking period, Lake Malaren, excuse my pronunciation, was actually a bay where Baltic ships could sail from in and out. They could sail from far distances. It was like a port um, that reached far into the interior of eastern Sweden. However, 
after the weight of the Pleistocene ice closed in on the land, there was a kind of like a post-glacial rebound, um, and it ended up melting. So the entrance it became a lake. It went from a bay to a lake after about 1200 CE, based on the melting of the glaciers. So approximately with this research, um, approximately close to 1100 excavated graves were found. Um, 544 were inhumation graves. And 570 were cremation burials. So of the 544 inhumations, which we know to be in the ground, 246 graves actually contained preserved bone and dental remains that were then analyzed osteologically. So the majority of the excavated inhumation graves originate from the large burial ground at Hemlenden. Hemlenden is just outside the settlement to the northeast and is the largest Viking period cemetery in Scandinavia. It contains at least 1,600 earthen mounds of a bunch of different sizes and approximately 670 of these have been excavated. So, again, unfortunately with cremations, it's a lot harder to analyze those burials based on the poor conditions of the preservation of bones. Um, So, we're just going to focus on the inhumation graves at this time. So, there were several types of burials found. Um, I really like when there's different types of burials found in different research because it reflects a variety of traditions and it's really kind of interesting to look at when you have a variety of types of burials because it can be such a big clue onto you know the movement of the people that were there at the time so although again with cremations they were a common treatment of the dead um so in this viking town they had ashes that were placed under a small mound or kind of shaped stone sculptures or enclosures. So although it's difficult to analyze the physicality of the remains based on the fact that it's not preserved very well, it's still important to know that more than half of the excavation burials at Burqa were in fact cremations. And also knowing that the way the living treated those cremations by placing the ashes under a small mound or enclosure gives us a really important look into into the rituals and the beliefs. Why they were put into mounds, why they were chosen to be under stone structures or enclosures, what was the significance of those stones, were they carved, did they have you know inscriptions on them or things like that, is all um, really important to kind of gather a bigger picture. So... Another interesting point of this research was the chamber graves that were also found. Um, What's significant about these chamber graves is the grave goods that were found and the kind of illustrated identification of 
the individuals that were buried there because the research suggests that it was non-local people based on the burial customs and the grave goods. So it has been suggested that these graves represent foreign merchants and their families because of the lack of stone-shaped enclosures or structures underneath them and the lack of cremation. It's made to believe that they were non local people and they must have been traveling merchants as well as there was oval brooches that were found in nearly all of the excavated chamber graves that contained women so we can kind of look at this type of jewelry could indicate that because they're only in graves with female individuals that they were dressed according to the local Scandinavian tradition when they were buried at least the type of female attire that would be worn for this Scandinavian tradition. Moving on from the chamber graves, um, there are largely other amounts of grave goods that were found. Um, Weapons, boxes, buckets, weights, there was a series of game boards, horse gear, as well as actual animal bones of horses and dogs were to be found. A number of examples of bone ice skates, as well as ice picks and crampons for shoes, were also found in different burials. This is interesting as well because this kind of documents the environmental aspects that we can see in Sweden, knowing that there are long cold winters that would be happening, as well as when we situated ourselves locally, knowing that the Pleistocene ice had been melted to create this lake. So looking at kind of these items for shoes and ice picks and things like that can give us a lot of landscape information about the different environmental elements that they had to survive in, as well as how this would affect their mobility, their movement, whether examples of ice skates could have been used to travel across the lake when it's been frozen or things like that ice picks to perhaps build houses or build structures another thing that is also important to look is the presence of game boards or jewelries or kind of you know recreational items that could have been used also tells a lot about you know the social aspect of the population that once lived there, the way they interacted with each other, whether that is through games or things like that, can give a lot of information about the everyday life. So looking back to the Malaran area of where we're doing our research, we can come to the assumption that there clearly could have been the potential for lots of connection to a variety of other areas knowing that there was a presence of a port and a place of travel before the lake appeared, knowing that from the chamber graves there had been a lot of non-local people found and non-local type of grave goods found, and things like that, we can come to the conclusion that there must have been a lot of mobility and a lot of perhaps migration and things like that happening within this population. So one of the place... Um, of special interest for this study is Western Finland. Since these artifacts 
associated with that area have been found actually in graves in Burka and in the Malaran Valley. Studies have documented that pottery made according to a Finnish tradition was produced in Burka and other places in the Malaran region. So that is another really big tell and kind of building on the puzzle piece of a larger picture. If we can see that there's documents of pottery being made in a Finnish tradition, there must have been contact with Western Finland that maybe perhaps people from Burka Sweden had traveled to Finland or vice versa. People from Finland had come to Burka Sweden through the port or things like that is really important to me when I look at this information because then you can see migration patterns, you can see populations interacting with each other, and when we have populations interacting with each other, there's ex- exchange of information. There's could be an exchange of style when we see dress and clothes or jewelry. There could be an exchange of language. You can see an exchange perhaps throughout food when we analyze the bones or the, if there was soft tissue involved we can see we know that game boards were a grave good that could tell us that again there was perhaps interaction throughout recreational activities with other people as we know most of the graves in the larger malaran region from this period were cremations um from those burials there were five out of the six samples happened to be artifacts that connected to western finland however at burka on the other hand four burials ended up having finnish artifacts in their chamber graves and as we know as chamber graves have been connected to non-local individuals excavated so with finnish artifacts being found in those graves can tell us a lot about again the movement of people and the possibility that people from Finland had in fact traveled to Burka and interacted with them so now we're going to be looking at one of the inhumation graves that we mentioned above um ended up being sexted as a woman and also dated to be 20 to 39 years of age in between, based on the toothware. In addition to the adult human, this grave contained skeletons of two horses, many weapons, and a variety of female clothing items that were well known from the Malarian region. In the grave, there were also a number of other objects, including the Baltic Finnish pottery that we mentioned had been found in this type of grave, So to start our question and discussion period, I'm going to again have another conversation with Casey regarding the interpretations and perceptions that kind of jump out at us based on this research, as well as what we can compare and contrast based on the first excavated site of Burka that we discussed earlier. Um, My initial question that I want to ask is, What kind of correlation or association do you see, Casey, in this site that was very similar to the first Burka site that we talked about? 
I would say for myself that um, a thing that jumped out to me was the gender and how um, in the first one that we looked at how gender was represented, how they identified um, the skeleton remains based on the sword that they found and they identified them as a male just because back then, blah, 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 right? Um, whereas this one, I find it interesting how the females are buried with clothing, they're buried with jewelry, they're buried with like really significant um, gifts that represent, I guess, um, like what you said, what they might have looked like back then or um, their lifestyle back then. Whereas the males are buried with nothing. So I find that kind of interesting. Like, is there a is there a differentiation in hierarchy or something like that? Maybe different kinships. I, I don't know. I think I think it's really interesting when you compare with the other site that we just looked at. What do you think, Claire? I agree. I think it was really interesting when we first dove into the topic of the eth- ethical issue of misgendering remains in the first research. Because I notice in this research, again, that it seems like the type of grave good highly influences the sex of the individual. For example, as we saw in the first research, the believed to be male individual had objects such as the sword, the shield, and things like that that are commonly associated with the male sexuality. And you... I noticed this again in the second research that when they looked at the female graves, the most prominent grave goods were types of jewelry, types of clothes, shoes, things like that. So it makes me take a step back and it makes me kind of think that although there aren't any reports or anything like that of any ethical misgendering issues in the second research, it still kind of comes to mind that a lot of priority is placed on the goods in coming to the conclusion of the sex of an individual, not disclosing the actual physical, analytical, osteological data that comes from the bones and the remains. It still gives a lot of social aspect to me about how the people like presented themselves in a way, if that makes sense, that, you know, and perhaps it comes to the conclusion that there were just different occupations at the time and that these grave goods simply mirror those said occupations because I also think it's important to note that not every object found in a burial or not every remain or artifact found in a burial must hold a significant meaning. It's very plausible that it could just simply be an object or a tool or something like that it doesn't always have to have a higher meaning which I think is also important to note especially in this burial where we didn't have the warrior individual like the first one these ones were more simplified in that way so thank you for listening to our very first episode of this podcast we hope you guys enjoyed the kind of research that we talked about and the kind of ideas that we came up with Hopefully it sparks some interest and your own kind of questions in your mind and maybe you can bring it to a family member or a loved one or something like that and have your own kind of creative discussions about ancient burials and how to interpret them because it it's really a fascinating and interesting way to look at the past. 
So please join us for our next episode, episode two, and we'll see you guys there. Thanks.